Over the past week, I've been calling family and friends, checking in on them to see how they're doing in the midst of this crisis. We share feelings of anxiety and fear about the wave that's coming, and that strange, surreal feeling of watching our world coming to an abrupt halt. Yet this crisis reminds me how many good people I have in my life. Rather than talking about inept government or sharing false rumors, we take pleasure in talking to each other, either by phone or Skype or Zoom. For a brief time, we shut off the noise and just just connect. We're not in denial about what's happening. We know all too well that we, our families, our friends, our public servants, and people all over the world, we, we know what we're all facing. It's not about burying our heads in the sand. Instead, it's simply letting the other person know that they're not alone. Because despite the fact that everyone on this planet is going to be impacted by this crisis in one way or another, it's far too easy to think you are alone in this. Recent events had not yet happened when I asked Francisco Alcala to appear as a guest on the show. I was inspired and moved by the work he's done with his nonprofit Home Storytellers, which he founded alongside his daughter, Alejandra. In collaboration with NGOs, Home Storytellers uses multimedia to tell the stories of refugees who, with the help of these organizations, create a new life for themselves after having lost everything. In the face of the threat of this pandemic that threatens life and livelihood, I take my cue from people like these. People who have already lost everything, yet who choose to rise up. They've lost their lands, their home, their property, loved ones, and have every reason to give up, but they don't. We don't know what life will look like on the other side of this crisis. Some of us will have lost more than others. But regardless of its individual impact on any of us, we don't have to feel powerless. We can still watch out for each other and let the other know that no matter what happens, we're standing here with you. You never have to be alone. None of us do. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, welcome to the show. Um, I'm, I was really glad I found out about your organization and, and, and your story. It's really, it, it's really in, inspiring and uh, on a variety of different ways. So, so welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, here with you and, uh, and, and, you know, having learned that, that you have done this so many times, I think like more than 500 now. So it's, yeah. it's it, it is terrific. <laughs> thank you thank you um you know considering all the things going on around the world i was glad that we were still be able, able to sit down and, and and do this so thank you for that and i think it's also kind of timely because you know with all the things that are happening all over the world with the virus and so much fear in in the world one of the ways that i have been keeping my head on my shoulders and not falling into fear and despair has been the recognition that there have been other people who have gone through and have survived through much more difficult circumstances than at least that we've experienced thus far. And I've, and I've really kind of 
taken heart in that, that despite what difficulties may lay ahead, that we as people have often been able to not just survive, but to rise above those circumstances. And I think that the stories that you are telling of refugees are perfect examples of that, of people who have literally lost everything and yet still persist in having hope for themselves, for their families, and and the future. And though I, I do want to talk specifically about you know your organization and what you guys have done, I'm curious to hear how your work with these people, especially with respect to telling their stories, has given you a perspective in terms of what's happening to all of us right now. Yeah, well, I mean, it has been a it has been a process that uh, you know really has changed me, and and it has been has changed my daughter, who is my partner in in home storytellers. Uh, she's co-founder, and by the way, is the most the nicest thing to be able to to work with your daughter uh, doing some good. So it, it's, it's it's just a terrific experience. But you know, we have we have gone through this to this experience together. And, and you know, when we started, we started focusing on migration in general because that was a topic that was interesting, really interesting to us because we have moved around the world and, and we also have seen very closely here in Mexico a lot of migration to the U.S. and, you know, people leaving the country for economic reasons. And then we started realizing that in that world of migration, there is a group of people that are probably the most vulnerable people, which is exactly what you're talking about, the people that have no choice but living living everything, you know, living their home, living their families, living what they, their culture, and going to a place that is, uh, you know, really foreign to them without nothing in their hands. And in many cases, don't even know how to speak the language uh, in the place where they go. So, so it's, it's very difficult to describe. So as we have gone and started doing this work, we, we started having the possibility to, to speak to, to people under these circumstances and learn that, you know, after going through this terrible situation, you know, they, they can still think about the future in a positive way. Uh, and, and that was, you know, that was so amazing. You know, that, that as I said, has changed, changed me personally because, you know, now I, I'm even more motivated to try to help and do something for, for the, for people that are under those circumstances. And, and I tell you, when we went to, to the refugee camp in Malawi, and being around 42,000 people that are under those circumstances was definitely life-changing. Yeah, it's, it's what's heartening about it is that not only that people have hope under these circumstances, but there are people out there actively helping these people. And it's just a reaffirmation that, that we get through these things together. And that it's not about demonizing other people for whatever reason or thinking that they're less than. You know, your work with, with home storytellers really reveals something that should be obvious to us, but is so easily forgotten the fact that these are people. 
you know, the, these are people who have the same desires and needs and wants as anyone else. And though their circumstances may be markedly different, that at the heart, it's just another person who, despite the fact that they live under disparate, very disparate circumstances, that we shouldn't think of them as so different that we can't empathize and sympathize with them. And, yeah. and, I, and your first film, Hot Dogs uh, and, uh, and a Tricycle, really spoke to that for me, uh, which was re- re- really, uh, really beautiful. Tell me, tell me about why you decided to do this, this kind of work. Because you had a 30-plus year career at uh, Kellogg. You, know, you, you lived in Mexico, the United States, Australia. You, know, you retired. You could have just been a man of leisure <laughs> you know, and, and just jo- enjoyed the rest of your years. Why did you want to sort of reinvent yourself in this particular way? Yeah, and believe me, I get a lot of questions. <laughs> about about that very, very frequently because it's it's tough work because you, you know to to do the type of work that we do we depend on on a lot of people and and because we are running a nonprofit we de- we depend on people you know helping us uh, uh, or partnering with us to achieve these goals so it's very hard work and when you are a small organization that is starting it's even harder. Because not a lot of people know you and not a lot of people understand exactly what you're trying to do. So it's a, it's a long process. But you know, coming back to your question, I had a great career with Kellogg's. Believe me, I enjoy it a lot. It, it was a, a career when, where I had the opportunity to do things that I never expected. I, I was you know, running manufacturing plants with a lot of great people and, and uh, in lots of different places. You know, I, I, in, in Latin America, uh, we had plants in, in Mexico, in Guatemala, in, in Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, and in Asia. I had plants in, in India, in, in Korea, uh, Japan, and, and in Australia. So I had the opportunity to go to all these places and, and, and meet people uh, in all these manufacturing plants. And I just, you know, realized that you know, people are people everywhere and every, everybody has needs and everybody has an understanding that, you know, that, that um, if, if you treat people as people, <laughs> they're going to give everything they can to, to help you succeed. Uh, or, uh, and so, so through my years with Kellos, that was probably one of the biggest, the biggest learning that I had. You know, it's, it doesn't matter that it's that somebody that is at the lowest level in the plant. If you try to treat that person as a human being and you give, give them a space to, to grow, uh, these people are going to be, you know, just reacting very positively and give everything, uh, for, to succeed, uh, so so you know that was that was a, a, a just a, an experience that I don't that I don't change for anything, and I think that's that's probably one of the reasons that I started feeling that that I have received too much mm. during those years. I start feeling the need that I had to give. So it was, I mean, believe me, it was comfortable. It was comfortable. I had a, I had a, an assistant 
I had uh, somebody driving my car. So it was pretty comfortable life. So keeping that up, it, it, uh, it, took, it took some strength <laughs> because financially it was also quite comfortable. So it took me, you know, like a few years to, to give it up and a lot of discussions with my wife. So because, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you cannot do alone. You know, eventually I, I felt that, you know, and I, and I was 51 when I decided to, to leave Kellogg's. So I had, I had a, lot, a lot of energy and a lot of passion to do what we are doing today. And of course, a lot of love for photography. I read that you got sort of uh, introduced to photography with a gift uh, from your coworkers, I guess, when you retire, when you got your first digital camera in, in your 50s. That's really kind of when that interest in photography that inspired what led to today. But that's quite a leap from, you know, from, <laughs> you know becoming an enthusiast in terms of a photographer to now running a, a nonprofit that revolves around photography video storytelling and working with organizations all over the all over the world tell me about that because a lot of people would just like go okay I'm, i got a camera i'm retired i'm just gonna get a 100 <laughs> millimeter lens and go to florida and take pictures of lots of birds but much harder a harder a little harder path in life than that <laughs> yeah it was an interesting story because you know i i was i was living towards Australia to take over the, the manufacturing facilities in Asia Pacific. You know, we have a go, a go away party with my team in Battle Creek, Michigan. You know, suddenly they, they decided to give me a, a little gift. At, at that time, this was a 2.1 megapixel point and shoot camera. It was my first experience with a digital camera. So we moved to Australia. And, and, and it, it was a very different place and a great place with a lot of uh, things to photograph. And I, as probably everybody that starts in photography, you start shooting everything until you start realizing what are the important subjects to you. So I started doing that, uh, getting a lot of photography books, a lot of photography magazine. Then I started realizing that this was coming natural to me. It was not like uh, framing a, uh, something. It was it was coming natural to me, and and I I said you know I'm I think I'm becoming more serious about photography, and and I started uh, you know looking for for programs where I could formalize my education. So because you know I'm a believer that you can never stop learning. I mean this is this is a a lifelong thing. You know, I mean, when I did a master in, in business administration earlier in my career in Kellogg's, but at this point, I wanted to get really serious about photography. So I learned about the program with the Academy of Fire University, which was a, an online program. And uh, because I was still working with Kellogg's, you know, it, it makes sense. So I started taking one class per semester. So it was a very, very slow process, but I was doing my homework uh, uh, on weekends and, and taking the classes uh, after work. So it was, uh, it was tough, 
but I was enjoying it so much. And if, if you do this program full-time, it's, full, it's four years. So imagine doing it the way that I was doing it, it, it was going to be forever. So that was a, a bit of a trigger for me to start thinking, you know, if I'm going to be serious about this, I, I need to start thinking about retiring from Kellogg's. Uh, and that's when I started my conversations and with my wife and looking financially, how can we do it? So by the end of 2013, uh, I left Kellogg's and, and basically focused full-time in completing the Master in Fine Arts. So where did the idea for home um, storytellers come up come about? Because it's, it's, it's an amazing effort that you, you guys are making. And I think, you know, photographers working with nonprofits is a big part of a lot of the work that a lot of documentary style photojournalists, you know, photojournalists actively do. But you didn't, you didn't come from that legacy. So for you, you know, you're at a slight sort of disadvantage. So tell me about, you know, how this idea came about and what were some of the challenges you faced in actually making it happen? Yeah, I mean, it's like everything starts with with a vision. You know, it, it's like, you know, I started thinking, I love photography. I, I, lo- I love visual storytelling. And I really want to do some good. So, so my vision was, how can I put together a project that works on the intersection of uh, visual storytelling and social good? And at, at the beginning, this was just a vision, and I had no idea how to do it. Mm-hmm. Zero. So, but, but you know, a, a vision drives that, that you're passionate about. It, it, just, it just drives you hard. You know, it's, it's like you, can, you, have to, you want to keep going, and you don't have all the answers at the beginning, but if you keep working very hard on it, you eventually start seeing some light. So at this, at this point, uh, you know, the Academy of Art University was incredibly helpful because, you know, you have to do a, a thesis and you have to decide, um, you know, first you have to decide in which uh, direction of photography you're going to be focusing on. You can focus on, on fine art, you can focus on documentary photography, or, or you can focus on commercial photography. That's one of the first decisions that you have to take when, when you enroll. And I definitely, I had no doubts that, that I wanted to focus on documentary photography. And, and then you, you start learning a lot about documentary photography and seeing a lot of perspectives. And the next decision, more or less at the middle of, of the way, is what kind of thesis work you're going to be doing. Because for your, the rest of the program, is around your thesis project. So you have to decide what kind of project you want to do and then all the uh, topics that you're going to be learning to support your thesis work. So, you know, that, that, was, that was the way. So I started with documentary photography, started deciding what was my, my thesis work, and I started working with a nonprofit here in my city. And this is a nonprofit that that works with women empowerment. So I started uh, photographing for them and, and started getting involved with, with the program and, and learning how do they work and 
getting really involved with with the with the people in the uh, in the rural communities and i was going to the rural communities uh, every single weekend it took me two hours to get there from from my city but you know i would go there spend time with the with the women you know uh, make make some shots and so so this process was it went on for about three years uh, so I had a lot of chance to to really you know on the, understand uh, uh, the power of, of of the image in helping people understand the the work that a nonprofit is doing so you know that that was my thesis work but at the same time the the academy has you you at the at almost at the end of the program you have a class where they call it your know, business um, I'm trying to think the name of the class, but the, the point is that you have to put together a project on how, what are you going to do what, what, once you're out of the program. So it's like putting together a business plan. So I decided that my business plan was going to be focusing around uh, the migration and it was going to be focusing around storytelling for migration topics, uh, and 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 uh, so you know that that st- pushed me to put together a business plan that became the basis of of home storytellers. You know, one of the challenges when you start something new, what, whether it's your the you know a nonprofit like yours or just a, a standard photographic business, is finding your first client. <laughs> and, and yeah. So. That's always as great as you have an idea as you think you have or a service or talent that you have, you have nothing unless you have someone to work with. So tell us about that particular challenge. To, to tell you the truth, for us was not such a big, difficult task. And I will explain why. Basically, uh, our process is about recognizing and finding the best solutions for refugee self-reliance. Okay, so so we do research, and and through the research we find a lot of great nonprofits that I am doing, you know, incredible work. And the other thing that we looked is organizations that are not so big that have so many resources that that you know can really pay for for the type of work that we do. What we did was to start doing research, and and we found. An organization called Asylum Access. This organization is, uh, you know, it's it's not huge, but you know, it has a a nice size and great programs in different parts of the world. And basically, we call them and we said, "This is the way we work. We we want to do for you uh, a documentary that speaks about you know the great work that that you are doing." So so I started talking with. With Lisa D'Annunzio, who is the the person in charge of development for that organization, I explained the process. She went back to to the leadership of the organization, and they said, "Yeah, I mean, this this makes a lot of sense." In that particular partnership, we were responsible to to fundraise to do the the documentary. Okay, so we took on the responsibility to do the. The fundraising, and and then we actually donated the the film to Asylum Access. 
So that's that. That's why for us, uh, you know, it's, it, it was not so difficult to find our, our first client. You know, the more difficult thing was to fundraise to be able to fund the the production of the documentary. And did you crowdsource uh, the the funding for that? Yeah, we did uh, a number of things. Uh, we because we were a new nonprofit, as probably most of the new profits do uh, start with uh, friends and family. And then we started expanding to do uh, crowdfunding. Uh, you know, and, and that's the, you know, ba- basically where we, where we got the part of the funds. And then we have some donors, individual donors, and it came uh, uh, finally. And, and so, so we were able to, to make it. It was not, it was not easy, but, but we were able to to come out of this uh, right now. We're we are now expanding our sourcing uh, the the source of our funds, and now we are uh, to, we're ex- exploring uh, corporate sponsorships, and we are also explore. I mean, we have some foundations that are interested in in supporting our work. So it's uh, you know it's expanding beyond crowdfunding. And, and major donors, but we also think that you know, depending on the type of organization, there are some organizations that are you know bigger and they have the the funds to to hire us, and you know we we also are open to do that type of work. The the films are, are uh, that I've seen so far. Uh, the first one that I already mentioned, and then you have another one. See, it's called Sawdust that you did in you're doing in in Malawi. Even the trailer for Sawdust is amazing. Uh-huh. And we've been talking primarily about you know your interest in, in photography, but you know you're, you're choosing to incorporate you know motion as, and I'm sure that stills play a part in that. But tell me about you know the choice to use video and motion as a component of your storytelling and not simply relying on skills because video, audio, it it adds a level of cost and complexity to any production. Mm -hmm. So um, tell us about the the choice to lead in with that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I never leave photography because photography, I love photography. Every time I have the, the possibility to create photographs, as part of our process, I do it. And, you know, when we went to Malawi, I created a lot of, you know, photographs that, that we are already using. Same, similar thing with the project with Asylum Access. We also, Asylum Access is, is using photographs as part of, of you know, besides the, the documentary, the video, uh, they are using photographs that we also donated to them. So... Photographs have uh, a very important role in our process. However, uh, you know, the film, it's, uh, you know, it has a, another, another very important role because, you know, the type of stories that we're, we're telling require to get uh, the viewers getting a lot more involved with the story than what we can do with, uh, with the photographs. And, and you know, I mean, we could do it with photographs and and a, and a write-up. However, in these days, uh, I think you know people are more keen to to watch uh, a documentary than 
than reading a big paper. Today, it's, you know, it, uh, film is, is, is huge and, and, and growing. And, and so we decided that in order to deliver our objective of inspiring you know, uh, people, businesses, inspiring governments, uh, and, and inspiring foundations to act in support of, of these solutions uh, towards self-reliance for the refugees, we believe that a film plays a very, very strong role uh, in, in, doing, in achieving that, role, uh, that goal. So we're combining both photographs and, and film to achieve that, that objective that we have. Of course, it's, uh, it's complex because, you know, I mean, you require, you know, you require a team effort in order to produce the type of film that, that we are, that we are producing. You know, in the case of, of Malawi, I mean, we are planning right now for the production and, and we have a, a four people crew that we have to take to Malawi yeah. to, to do the film. And that's not cheap at all. So tell me what kind of difference that the, the first film that you did for Asylum Access um, made in terms of that organization's ability to get the word out and also to, to fundraise. I mean, we, we can talk about uh, Hot Dogs on a Tricycle as a proof of concept. You know, the, the thing that, that uh, has been really interesting, yeah, and, and this comes from Asylum Access because they, they keep feeding us the, the benefits that they are having, you know, by using the, the film. We received, uh, you know, the latest numbers is that in seven months, they actually fundraise uh, $120,000 of incremental funding for their, for their programs, uh, which is actually, you know, we were really pleasantly surprised because they haven't gone all the way with their campaign uh, because you know there is some safety concerns with the with Mario's sister who is still in El Salvador, uh, so so they haven't gone with a full campaign, but they, they have used it uh, in some uh, screenings and they have used it with their foundations and with potential foundations and and with individual donors. And the response that they have had has been just terrific. The other interesting side of this is that. After they start showing it to different companies in Mexico, the, the, the number of companies uh, joining their hospitality route program, which is once the, the, the refugee person is uh, legally in Mexico, how can they help them to get a job? So eight new companies have joined their hospitality route program. Uh, so, you know, for us, that's also terrific news. And for them, of course. That, that must be very heartening to, to see that this idea that started as a little germ in your head is going to be able to help so many people. Yeah, it is. It, it is just um, you know, amazing. Uh, it's, it, it is an amazing feeling. And, you know, the, 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 the thing is that every day we are we are learning and we believe that that the impact can grow you know, significantly. I didn't mention, which is probably relevant, that you know, as, as I was uh, thinking about this vision, I, I got in touch with, uh, with a person that I don't know if you have met, but he's uh, an incredible person, Annie Griffiths. 
She is uh, one of the first National Geographic photographers, and and she's in the in the New York City area. She was so kind because she started an organization in probably about eight or nine years by by now. Uh, it's called Ripple Effect Images, and she as- associated with a number of uh, of different. National Geographic uh, photographers and created this collective, and they have been supporting uh, projects a- around the topic of women's empowerment for for all these years. the The beautiful thing is that what they have found is that uh, for every dollar that that people have invested in the creation of these documentaries, the benefited organizations have received. $10 of incremental funding. It, it just, it's just amazing. And, and Annie Griffiths uh, has helped me to, you know, to, at the beginning of, of this process in, in terms of a lot of things that it would have taken me a lot of time to learn. It was, it was such a nice help uh, as we you know, started uh, thinking about this, this process. So, so, you know, with hot dogs and tricycle, uh, under the restrictions that I told you in terms of the communication, uh, we are already at $4 per, per one uh, invested. And for Sawdust, uh, with the learning that we have, we, we will reach at least $6 uh, per one invested in the film. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Because one thing that we are doing differently is that we will have a funded, what we're calling a, a social impact campaign, that takes the, uh, the the film to audiences that you know, can be interested in supporting the cause. So we we have learned a lot about that, and in this new project, we are going to be applying those learnings. And we believe that that uh, and we're committing actually to to delivering uh, incremental three hundred thousand dollars to the to the organization that, that we are helping. Which is there is hope in Malawi. Well, you're you're working with a bunch of talented people, not least of which are like Ed, Ed Cashy, Juana Toro, who was a former guest of the show. But, oh, really? Yeah, but you're you're also working with your daughter, uh, which is probably a very unique experience. And you actually co-founded this organization with her. Tell us a little bit about her and how it's been collaborating with your your daughter, yeah. Uh, Andrea. Yeah, I'll, I'll get. Uh, to talk about my daughter, but I, I cannot not talk about the experience with that Kashi. I mean, we worked together on, on producing hot dogs on a tricycle. I, you know, it was the first time that I had the chance to meet Ed. And believe me, it's, it's an incredible, incredible person as a human, as a photographer, as a filmmaker. We learned so much from him and, and thanks to, Ed and also Caroline Goldman, who is who was the producer, we were able to. That was Hot Dogs and a Tricycle. is our first production, and you know, thanks to a team effort with them, uh, this this project has been you know a, a pretty good success for being the first one. It, it, it's so nice to meet people like Ed and Caroline. It, it is incredible people that, that you can feel that they are doing this because they want to help the world. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to work with people like them. So now, now my daughter, Alejandra, uh, she is uh, a graphic designer. 
She uh, actually did her college in Spain. She asked her dad and mom if we could support her to go to Spain and do her college there. I mean, we couldn't complain because we created uh, global kids and we moved them around the world. So, so the, the world became their home. It was very hard for us to say no. So we actually support her. Uh, she went to Spain, completed her college there. And she liked it so much there that, that she decided to, to stay there and find a job. As a graphic designer, she, she got uh, working with a, with a, with a French company and they were doing, uh, you know, some interesting work uh, uh, around, uh, you know, supporting uh, shows uh, where, you know, there's a big show in, in Barcelona for, for mobile phones. So they actually were preparing the shows for different companies. It was a lot of learning for her, but she started feeling that, that she needed to do something. And I think that has to do with millennials, that they come with that chip. <laughs> but, uh, so my, my, my daughter started feeling that it was not all, everything about money and, and that, that she wanted to, to do some more meaningful thing. So at that time, you know, I started talking about uh, my idea to her. And, uh, you know, suddenly she started saying, you know, I mean, I really like what, what you're talking about. So at the end, I invited her to join me in, in you know, finalizing the, the detail of, details of the project. And to tell the truth, we wouldn't be what we are today with, without her input. Because, you know, she, she brings a completely different set of skills to what I have. And we have complemented each other in a really beautiful, beautiful way. It's like uh, we, we have a, an objective for, for what we're doing. And we are separated, but separated by the Atlantic Ocean. But each one of us know what we have to do. And, and uh, so we, she does... Uh, her thing, I do what I have to do, and we never, we we never feel that the other is not doing what we need to do. Yeah, uh, it's a great team effort, and and she's a great editor. Uh, I mean, she edited uh, Hot Dogs on a Tricycle. Oh, uh, she did and, that and, Yeah, and she edited the. Well, she 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 contributed with uh, with film. And edited the the Sodos pitch that that you watched. Okay, it, it, it's just incredible. We, I mean, we're on a day to day basis. Uh, it's it's basically my daughter and I because Ed and and everybody else you know come when we have projects to execute. But when it, on the day to day managing of of the organization, it's uh, at this point is is my daughter and I. I think that that. Uh, uh, you know the, the amount of work that we have done is it's a lot, uh, yeah. uh, and it, and it's, it's just a, it's a pleasure to be working with my daughter. Uh, we we talk every day on on a video conference, uh, so so it has actually brought us together in an incredible way. Yeah, I would I would think because when the child becomes an adult, the the, the relationship sort of has to change out of. Out of just necessity of the fact that, you know, that one person has gotten older, they're no longer a child. 
But I'm sure that for the parent, it's a little difficult to sort of get adjusted to that idea because to them, they're all, all, always the kid. But given that, what do you feel that this collaboration with your daughter has taught you about your daughter that you wouldn't have? <laughs> okay. So I, I told her a few days, a few days ago, you know, or yeah, I think I told her, but definitely I, I, I thought about it. It's like every day I am learning from my daughter. I hope she learned a lot from me when, when she grew, but now it's like, Every day, I'm, I'm, I'm learning so much uh, from her. And it, it is her, her passion for what she is doing. It's the, the speed of, as I said, you know, this, uh, this generation comes with a, with a very interesting way of seeing the world and incredibly effective in uh, navigating through a number of things that it takes me a long time to do. You know, if, if I start doing research, in internet, it takes me a long time to find things. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I I see the speed on how she finds things, and, and it's just I, I just get incredibly amazed. The other thing, I, uh, you know, it's another example because we we are trying to figure out a more effective way to communicate what we do and why we do it. Uh, a couple of days ago, she came with a, you know, with a really interesting concept that I, I said to her, you know, this is, this is exactly where we want to go. You know, it, I mean, she, she called it radical empathy. Mm -hmm. When we are talking about uh, people that is, you know, in the other side of the world, and, and we are talking about people that are so removed from everyone, everybody else, at the beginning, you said, you know, we have to consider these people and person like with the needs like we all have, but it's so, so difficult for people to get away from a concept, a concept that, that is a refugee and put a name to a person and, and start trying to, to feel what these people, you know, these individuals are feeling and, and how, how they are experiencing life in a way that, that we don't have a clue how can they survive under these circumstances. So as we think about our, our films, we're starting to talk about this uh, idea of, of radical empathy because, you know, it's we want to get people as close as possible uh, to Mario or to Jack. You know, you can feel it with Mario. You know, we're bringing you to his place, very small place, and... I did, and by the way, we didn't put the uh, the Cocoa Krispies box in there from Kellogg's. <laughs> <laughs> it was right there. But you know, you keep a little bit of details of the life of the of Mario, and you start feeling, you know, this is just like me. He's doing his, he's preparing his coffee, and and he's washing his clothes. You know, it's, it's we are we are talking about, you know, how can we make people to be so close to the person that is under so, those circumstances that there is this empathy or as my daughter call it, radical empathy that transform us and, and to, to say, I need to do something, you know, whatever is in my hands to do, maybe it's just to give 
ten dollars, or maybe it's to do something really big, you know, like like uh, pushing to change a law. Uh, but but you know that's that's okay. You know, everybody is gonna have different circumstances to do. But the idea of doing something, it's is what we want to to achieve uh, because we need a lot of. Uh, people to help, and we're talking about right now more than 25 million refugees in the world, and about you know 70 million displaced people. It, it requires lots of resources. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is: I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone—someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that one photographer be, and why? Yeah, well, it's uh, I had a mentor in my in my master of fine arts, and I I learned so much from from him that I I think I would recommend. His name is uh, David Bowman. I don't know if you have David heard. Bowman. David Bowman. The Bowman. B O U M A N. Okay. So. David was uh, incredible in, in helping me uh, define a style in, in my photography. I spent uh, a whole semester, you know, having discussions with him and uh, and going going over my photographs and receiving feedback and questioning why you do what you do and focusing on on being deliberate about my photography. You know, it's not like you just go and photograph. You have to. You have to be deliberate about about your photography. I I learn a lot, and my style it has to do a lot with uh, with the interactions that I had with uh, David Bowman. Uh, he's in the Minnesota area. He's a great photographer and a, and a great person. Well, thank you for the recommendations. Thank you for your time, and thank you for the work that you're doing, man. It's great. Thank you. I I really appreciate having the the time. Uh, and uh, meeting you and uh, having the opportunity to, to speak about what we're trying to do. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, together we can, we can make a difference. Uh, there are a lot of lives that are depending on, on the world to do, doing something. Despite everything that's happening, I want you to know that we're here for you. We are still going to produce the show, though coming episodes will likely reflect our current circumstances. I want the Candid Frame to be a port in the storm for you in the coming weeks. I know that moments like this can give rise to fear of economic insecurity. I share them with you. So I don't ask for your support lightly. But if you can, I hope that you will support the show through our Patreon effort by contributing $5 or more a month. And if you're already a Patreon supporter, I hope that you continue doing so. I'm using those resources to not only continue producing these weekly episodes, but to create some other content as we face this challenge together. So sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thanks. Thanks to Francisco for joining us. Find out more about home storytellers and the great work that they're doing by visiting homestorytellers.org. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. 
Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a great response, and I'm back with a follow-up where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8, and your purchase is another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previously published ebooks by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops, special events, and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Chuck Miller, James Burke, and Mark Thomas for their recent contributions. I can't thank you enough. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.